grief and pain and loss are no respecter of persons. It doesn't matter where you were born. It doesn't matter where you've lived. It doesn't matter your race, your culture, nationality. It doesn't matter the size of your family. It doesn't matter your education level. It doesn't matter your economic status. It doesn't matter if you're a follower of Jesus or not. Grief and pain and loss are simply a part of being human. And when we think of grief, particularly, we tend to think of death. And that is certainly one of the primary ways in which we experience grief. I have I've stood by hundreds of caskets, stood at hundreds of gravesides, and seen the effect of death and grief. But grief is not limited to death. When you think about grief, you think about loss, and loss involves anything that we treasure that we no longer have. The death of a dream, the death of a relationship, uh, the death of, of an expectation that we were sure was going to be fulfilled. Grief and pain and loss comes to all of us in one way or another, but it comes. I find that when we, when we experience grief, one of the first things we do is to ask questions. We feel that sense of loss. When we feel the pain, we ask questions, and usually the question is why? Why did this happen? Why didn't that happen? What did I do or not do? Who's at fault? Often our questions moved eventually to God. Why did you allow that? Maybe why did you do that? It's the most natural thing in the world, and there's nothing wrong with the questions. I think the questions can help us. But it's a part of the grieving process to seek answers. And when you look at this story of Mary Magdalene at the tomb, this is exactly what you find her doing. She is grieving, not just because Jesus ended up on a cross, but because now she's at the tomb and he's not there. And the most natural reason for her to think why Jesus isn't there is not that he rose from the dead, it's that someone took him. And so she's asking, what have you done with him? Where has he gone? There is this searching in us for answers when our expectations are not fulfilled. I think grief has a lot to do with expectations. They're legitimate expectations, but they're expectations nonetheless. And when they aren't met, when they aren't fulfilled, when they don't happen the way we think they should or could, we feel a pang of loss and grief. And here's Mary at the tomb asking, What happened to Jesus? There is 
there is an irrationality to grief and loss and pain. We ask all of these questions, and most of the time, we don't really get the answer that we want. That's what you hear Mary asking. How could anyone, why would anyone take the body of somebody out of the tomb? Why would someone do that? I mean, the cross is, was, was difficult and grievous for her, but she could look around and see the people who did that. And she might even have an intellectual understanding of their hatred for Jesus and why they would do that to him. But who would steal a body out of a tomb? And quite frankly, most of our grief and pain and loss, though we seek for answers, we don't usually get the answers we want. We can rationalize it to some degree. We can explain it to some degree. But ultimately, there is always a part of it that doesn't make sense, that we can't quite explain. And as Mary experiences that, she encounters Jesus. What fascinates me about this brief conversation with Jesus is that he doesn't answer her question. Where have you taken him? I'll go get him. It's as if Mary is saying, look, I know how to solve this problem if you just help me. I can handle this. I can take care of it. But I need some help. She wants answers to her questions. Jesus doesn't address her questions. Jesus doesn't address the irrationality of what she's facing. All Jesus does is speak her name. Mary. I don't think that's the answer Mary wants. I think Mary wants answers to her questions. But Jesus understands that what Mary wants is not necessarily what Mary needs. Because Mary's grief and pain and loss is not so much intellectual as it is emotional, spiritual, every part of her being. We can have our answers, our questions answered. And it really doesn't take away the sting of our grief. What we need is to hear Jesus with us, calling our name, telling us, I'm here. Jesus doesn't tell her to, that her grief is unnatural. Jesus doesn't tell her that she shouldn't be grieving. Jesus doesn't explain to her what has happened. He simply says, Mary. I love the fact that Jesus doesn't give Mary and doesn't give us some kind of generic answer to our grief and our pain. He doesn't say, look, I, you know, everybody faces pain, so you're going to just have to deal with it. It's life. And he doesn't put, give her some formula. Here are five steps to overcoming your grief and pain and loss. He says, Mary... And the very speaking of her name indicates the personal nature of Christ with her. I'm here. You're looking for me. You're looking for answers. I'm right here. 
I'm standing right in front of you. I'm here. It's fascinating how grief blinds us to the presence of Jesus. It, it is so amazing to me that Mary, Mary has no concept of, being, of ever seeing Jesus again that when she sees him, she doesn't recognize him. Grief does that to us. Grief blinds us to the presence of, of Jesus with us. Grief blinds us to the, to the word of Jesus to us until we hear our name. He gets right in front of us and he says, I'm here. Not a big fanfare. Just, I'm here. I'm with you. I'm always interested when Scripture explains things like John does here about Mary's response. You know, I mean, he's writing in Greek. He's writing this in Greek, and when he gets to this point, he says, and Mary replied, Rabboni, which is Aramaic for teacher. There aren't that many places in Scripture where we get that kind of explanation. And scholars debate, you know, what that's about, and, but it, it strikes me that maybe what John is trying to tell us is that, is that we needed to hear Mary respond in her heart language. She spoke Aramaic. This is her heart language. And, and when she hears Jesus, there's no thinking, there's no processing, it's just Rabboni. It's, it, the pain is in her heart. Her response is from her heart. It is from the depths of her being that she sees Jesus and she responds to him. Because Jesus is touching the very deepest places of her need, of her burden, her loss, her pain, her life. I think there is wrapped up in just that one word, Mary. There is wrapped up in that word the call of the gospel to trust. The call of the gospel to believe that Jesus has done what he said he would do. That Jesus keeps his promises. That Jesus is with us. Trusting is hard in grief. It's hard to trust because we're the pain feels so deep because we have all of these questions because what we really want is for God to come and to stop the pain. What we really want is for God, not even, to, not even before stopping the pain, we want to live a life where we don't experience pain. We want to live a life free of pain. We want to live a life free of grief and loss and hurt and rejection and all the ways in which we experience pain. But God never promises us that. In fact, our, we ought to really expect the opposite of that. God created a world that, that in which human beings are free. And in a world in which people are free, and he did that because he wants relationship with us, a genuine relationship, not a relationship that we are forced to have with him, but a relationship that we want to have with him, 
Because that is so important to God. He created human beings with freedom. And wherever there is freedom, there is risk. But quite frankly, wherever there's love, there's risk. You cannot love without taking risk. You love another person. Why does it hurt so much when someone you love dies? Because you love them. You've taken the risk to love them. Why does it hurt so much when a relationship in which you've invested yourself falls apart? Because you've risked to invest yourself in it. Why is there so much pain when the dream of your life doesn't happen? Because you've invested yourself in trying to make it happen. You've given yourself to it. And the minute we risk, we open ourselves up for the potential for pain. But the alternative to that is to live lives that are safe. But we weren't created for safe. We were created for love. And the only way to live a life that's safe is to completely close ourselves off from others. But you ask anyone who has attempted to do that, if their life is now pain-free, it's just a different kind of pain. It's a hopeless kind of pain. It's a despairing kind of pain. It's a lonely kind of pain. Jesus doesn't come and say, let me stop you from having the potential for pain. Instead, he says, let me step into your pain. I'm right here with you. I'm standing right in front of you. Trust me. In a couple of, oh, in a, couple of months, Jesus is going to, the disciples are going to watch Jesus ascend away from them. And he says to them, he will remind them, he reminds them that the Holy Spirit is coming. And he says to them, Jesus says to Mary, don't touch me, you know, don't cling to me, don't grab me, because I've not yet ascended to the Father. Scholars debate what that means as well. I wonder if it, among all the definitions, of descriptions, one of the ideas that is being communicated here is that, look, you're not going to experience the fullness of healing in this world. Not until I come back, not until I reappear, not until I usher in the kingdom, in all of its fullness, will you experience complete healing. But until that day, I'm leaving you the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is going to remind you of everything I've said to you. The Holy Spirit, whom he calls the Comforter, is going to come and give you peace and grace and strength. He's going to remind you that I'm with you always. He's going to remind you that I went to the cross for you. He's going to remind you that the tomb is empty. That I've conquered the reason for all of this pain and grief and heartache that you experience. The Holy Spirit is with you, ministering to you. Loving you, caring for you. But he also leaves the church. 
And the church becomes the visible presence of Jesus in this world. And that's why Paul writes so often about bearing one another's burdens, caring for one another, loving one another, helping one another, strengthening one another. Because as the church, we have the privilege to be agents of healing for Christ. I think we miss that so often. Because often the image we portray in the church is we need to have it all together. We wear our masks. We, put up our, we, we live with our facade. Everything is fine. How are you doing? Oh, I'm great. When inside, you're not great. But that's not what the church is supposed to be. The church is supposed to be the place where it's a safe place to come and to say, I'm hurting, I'm in pain, I'm grieving, I'm struggling, and to find welcome arms, listening ears, loving touch, compassion, grace. This is the call of the church. This is what it means to be the body of Christ. That we stand in the spirit of Christ right in front of each other. And we call each other by name. And we love each other. And Christ works through us to minister his grace of peace and healing and mercy and comfort to our hurting, aching hearts. And as we begin to be healed by the Holy Spirit, we actually can help other people who are coming behind us to walk through things that we know something about. I mean, it's one thing to talk to someone about our pain. It's a whole other thing to talk to someone who's been through a similar kind of pain. They know. They know. And there's something about having been through it that makes us just a little bit more compassionate, a little bit humbler, a little bit more patient and kind, loving, caring. And it's a risk to do that. But it's the call of the church. As I've said to you on a variety of occasions, I think much of our journey through life is rooted in our view of God. And I particularly think that's true when you talk about grief. Because there's something that, that is tied in our grief to our image of God. How we respond to grief, what we think about grief, how we view God in the grief. It's a lot to do with our image of God. And as I think about the question that both the angels in the tomb and Jesus ask Mary, it seems to me that there is something about that that helps us interpret and reveals our image of God. The question is, why are you crying? 
And you can ask that question in a variety of ways. We don't, we don't have Jesus' tone of voice. We don't see his eyes and his face. We just have the words. Is Jesus asking her, why in the world are you crying, woman? Have you not been listening to anything I've been telling you? What is wrong with you? Why are you grieving? What's the problem? I rose from the dead. I finished this. It's done. Get over it. Come on. It might be that he's asking the question out of a a sense of disconnectedness. Okay, why is it again you're crying? I don't understand. I'm sorry. I I was thinking about something else. I was busy with something else. You know that, that experience you have when you're trying to talk to someone and they're reading the paper or scrolling through their phone? Sure, yeah, yeah, all right, here, whatever you say, uh-huh, I'm good. I think Jesus asked it out of a heart of compassion. Why are you crying? Tell me. Talk to me about it. I want to hear. I want to know. I care about you. I understand this is hard for you. So let's talk about it. Bear your soul to me. Bear your heart to me. Let me hear it. I'm here for you. As you think about that question and you think about your grief, if if your image of God is, is that he's impatient with us in our grief, then we will make little progress in getting through it. We will always feel like we ought to be better at this. We should be over this. It, you know, we're, we're, it's, it's, we're, not, we're taking too much time with it. If we think that God is, is sort of disconnected from us, then we become bitter and resentful because in one way or another, somewhere deep in the recesses of our mind, we blame him for this. And now he doesn't care. It doesn't matter to him. We're not even important enough to him. It's only when we understand that Jesus is speaking words of compassion to us. Grace, mercy, love. His heart is breaking because our hearts are breaking. And he knows, he understands. He went to a cross. He understands pain and grief and loss He understands the questions. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He gets it. He understands the risk of love. God is the great risk taker. He is the ultimate risk taker. Think of the risk God takes in creating humanity knowing that he creates us, we may well rebel against him. But the relationship is worth it. Think of how God risks identifying himself with people like Noah, Abraham, Moses. Great men, but man, are they flawed. Think of the risk God takes in choosing the weakest nation on earth slaves, and saying, these are my people, and I want everyone to know that. That doesn't end so well for them. Think of the risks God takes in sending his son 
Think of the risk God takes to tell, say to the church, you're my presence in this world. But God keeps risking and risking and risking because as Jesus tells us, as John reiterates to us, God is love. And nothing is more important for us to understand about God in our grief and our pain than that God loves us and he's with us. That the tomb is empty. God has conquered the reason, the ultimate reason for our pain and our loss and our grief. And the day is coming when we will understand that and we will experience the full healing. And in the meantime, he's asking us to trust him. That he may not give us the answer we want, but he gives us the answer we need. He gives us himself. I'd like for you to do something this morning. At the each end of the of the pews are some index cards. They're just there on the seat. If you don't have any in your row, look behind you or ahead of you. And make sure everyone in the row gets a card. And hopefully there's, you have something to write with in front of you or something you have with you. We're going to take a few moments of silence to give you a chance to write down perhaps what has come to your mind this morning as we're thinking about grief and pain and loss. You may be thinking, well, what comes to my mind is pretty insignificant compared to the grief that other people face. That has nothing to do with it. Your pain is your pain. I'm not comparing it to anybody else. It's just where you are, what you're experiencing. It may be something that's happened a long time ago. It may be something that's more re- been more recent. It really doesn't make any difference. But as you were listening this morning, as you were thinking this morning, something came to your mind. We're going to take a moment, and I hope you write that down on that card. And then in a couple of moments when we come up to take communion, I want you to carry that card with you and hold it in your hand. And as you eat the bread and drink the cup, to do that as an act of affirmation that, that you are bringing this to Jesus and that you trust him to be present with you in it, to be the agent of healing in your life, to stand before you, to hear you calling his name, and to sense his love overwhelming you. Gracious Father, thank you for your faithfulness. 
but the promise of your presence in all of life, particularly in the difficult moments of life. We pray, Father, that you will pour out the abundance of your blessing upon the bread and the cup. That as we eat and drink, we will, we will experience once again the presence of Jesus ministering to our hearts and our souls. As we watch each other come to receive the sacrament, may we be reminded that we are a body care for each other. We love each other. We are for each other. Father, thank you for your presence with us. And we ask this through Jesus. Amen.